Heavy Cardboard, episode 127, Feudum. Coming to you from the Palladium in Wooster, well, nearish Boston, Massachusetts, anyways. Welcome to Heavy Cardboard, where we talk medium and heavy strategy board games, war games, 18xx, and other related topics in the board gaming hobby. We're your hosts. I'm Edward. And I'm Brandon. Hey, all right. So welcome to the show, Brandon. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, I'm excited about this. Um, I know you had played, uh, you'd been talking about Feudum a couple months back in the uh in the slack channel over on the heavy cardboard slack and so i reached out to you shoot now it's been a month and a half maybe maybe two months since i was like hey do you want to you want to do the review of feudum and you were like yeah there are a few things in life i want to do more than (laughs) no 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 i'm kidding so seriously it's your first time on the show so tell folks a little bit about you and the games you dig all right. Yeah, sure. Um, my name is Brandon. I'm living in Georgia, just outside of Atlanta. Uh, I've been playing games since I was a kid. Uh, mostly normal, uh, Monopoly, all that stuff. Sure, um, all the stuff brother. we all grew up on. Yep. Um, then moved to playing a bunch of Magic, especially through uh, college years. Um, then kind of was out of it for a while. Uh, while I finished up studying and... When I moved back to Georgia uh, after school, a um, friend of mine introduced me just to Pandemic. Uh, it was my first kind of more modern game. And from there, it's been all kinds of stuff. Uh, do mostly uh, Euros, medium heavy uh, to heavy. Uh, really get into train games. I've uh, been selling them in 18xx in the last year or two. So. That's a deep and dark wormhole, isn't it? It is. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. So uh, what are some of your favorite games? Oh, my favorites, um, top of the list, I think the only ones I have with, uh, rated as a 10 on BGG right now is uh, Age of Steam and uh, Food Chain Magnate. All right. Uh, awesome. Yeah, you fit in just fine, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. Good stuff. Uh, as far as what's going on here uh, lately, I got to say the house is getting pretty cozy. Finally, have gotten TVs hung on walls, have decorations put up around the house to where it almost feels like I've moved in. It's been, what, five months, so I would hope so. Uh, but yeah, it's super comfortable. It's starting to get there. Still trying to figure out a heating issue or lack of insulation on the first floor. So I live in a three-floor apartment like multi-family house thing and the first floor is frigid because you know it's winter and apparently there's no insulation down there so the first floor you can't wear a t-shirt and i have two space heaters uh to try and keep things warm down there because well heat rises and so the studio which is on the second floor is rather comfortable and the bedroom stays hot and i'm like Hmm. The joys of renting, but Hey, you know that and the joys of a hundred year old house, I guess, but you know, it's a pretty cool little place. The studio is coming together. Uh, pretty happy with this. All I have to do still is mount the monitor or the TV that we use for the chat and everything. Uh, other than that, the studio is just about done and yeah, it's starting to come together. I'm really excited about the place being comfy, which is always nice to have, you know, the place where you are, 20 plus hours out of the day be comfortable so yeah that's kind of nice 
That's nice. I'm actually looking at moving in just a month. So moving as like renting, buying or what? Oh yeah. Uh, we're renting right now, uh, buying another house again. Um, so just, to actually signed our contract on that yesterday. Oh, congratulations, yeah, dude. Very you. cool. Yes, yeah, so nice. close in a month and get to uproot. Really okay. Good. Congrats on the house and moving sucks. So I'm sorry yes. in that regards, but at least it's for a new house, right? Yep. Good stuff. Uh, so Valentine's Day, which, um, well, has come and gone. And I got to say that I got one, possibly two really unexpected, really cool gifts from Jess. I, I'm very excited. The possible one, depending on scheduling issue or issues, is on the 27th of this month. Mumford and Sons is coming to Providence, Rhode Island. Sign me up. Yes. And if everything plays out right, we're going to be going to that. Yes. And the thing that is for sure going to happen, the following night in Wooster, Watsky is going to be in uh, in in Wooster on the 28th, and we have tickets for that for sure. So super stoked to go see Watsky again. Uh, yeah, if you've listened to this show for any appreciable amount of time, you know how big of a fan I am of his and his moral of the story has kind of been my life's anthem for the last two and a half, three years. So yeah, big fan of Watsky. So looking forward to uh, going to see one, maybe two shows of two of my three or four biggest artists in my life. So that's awesome. Super stoked for that. On that note, uh, I'm looking forward to spring and things stop snowing. We've been getting a lot of snow up here lately, which no big deal. It's, it's no different really than Denver in that regards, but I'm looking forward to spring because I want to be a tourist. I want to like go see the history of Boston, which I haven't been able to do yet. So I'm looking forward to doing that. Uh, switching over to show stuff. Uh, the first convention of the handful that I'm going to be traveling to this year is coming up next month. And I, I say convention and I kind of do that in air quotes because it's the gamma trade show, which is not open to the public. Uh, it's a industry only trade show. So it's for retailers, publishers, distributors, and obviously media. This last year was the first place that I saw Teo to walk in, uh, from what is now board and dice was NSKN at the time. Um, pretty much all the major U S based publishers are going to be there, distributors. And so it's a, it's an important show for, for the show. And so we're definitely going to go there. It is a bummer that it happens to fall the same weekend as LyriaCon, which was a huge bummer because at LyriaCon, I mean, obviously it's in Lyria, Portugal. So um, yes, that that's higher on my list than Reno, Nevada. And a lot of European publishers are there. So Uli from Spielworks, you got What's Your Game there. You got Matthias from Frosted Games. You have Tony Boydell. Um, oh boy, there's a whole bunch of, and it's, it's almost like a heavy con esque, you know, there's, but there's more, there's probably 400 folks that go there, but it's a ton of prototypes. So it was a really tough decision as far as which to go to, but I feel like gamma is more important for the show. Uh, even though I saw a bunch of prototypes last year there at LyriaCon, but um, I got promised from Polo Soledad, who helps organize it, that they've already looked at Gamma for next year and made sure that there won't be a conflict for 2020. 
So probably going to be going back to that in 2020. So yeah, super, uh, super looking forward to Gamma. That said, for those of y'all out there listening to this, um, are you interested in hearing daily diaries from Gamma this year? If so, let me know. Send me an email or hit me up on Twitter or whatever. Google heavy cardboard. There's a million ways to get a hold of me. But let me know if you're interested in daily diaries for that. Because honestly, if you guys are, I'll do them. If you're not, I won't. Simple as that. Let's see what else is going on show related. Got a new piece of kit for the studio, which I always feel like the podcast kind of gets short shrift on this, right? For equipment, because I'm always talking about new cameras. I'm talking about, you know, the newest piece, which here is a compressor for the audio for live streams. Well, I guess the reason that is, is these microphones are as good as it gets for studio recording. So I can't really do more for the studio for the podcast because I have the Cadillac of microphones here. So where is there to go with that? And I actually... And have hired somebody to help edit the podcast. I don't know what else I could do. I've licensed the music. I did. So it's all kit at this point for the YouTube channel side of things. But the compressor will help knock down the audio to where the peaks won't be as so loud. When we laugh, it doesn't blow out your eardrums. So I apologize to everybody for the past two years that we've done that too. However, it's fixed or it's in the process of getting fixed once we get that dialed in. So excited about that. Let's see. What else can I talk about? There are two official partnerships uh, that I have now for sponsored playthroughs, one of which kind of has been an informal thing for, what, a year now, and that's Capstone Games. Pretty much everything that they put out, we do sponsored live streams for. That's going to continue, but hey, it's official, so that's cool. And the other one is Compass Games. Compass Games uh, getting into Euros via Uli Blenemann, he of Spielworks, as well as their war game side of things. So you're going to be, see a whole lot of Euros and some of their war games uh, being sponsored live streams, uh, playthroughs on the channel coming up in the next year as well. So looking forward to that. Yeah, that's about it, I guess. Other than Donning the Purple, Ground Floor 2nd Edition playthroughs are coming up this week. I did a solo playthrough of Cruel Necessity this last weekend. That went pretty well, I thought, which solo playthroughs are really weird, Brandon, because you're talking constantly for hours mm-hmm. by, by yourself. yourself. Yeah, exactly. And so I'm like, I feel like I'm just droning on and on and on, but it seemed folks enjoyed it. So I'm going to be doing another one of DR Congo in a week and a half or so, but we'll talk about that more in a little bit. Um, I guess... Well, here, you'll be interested in this, Brandon, that uh, we're working on setting up an 18xx week, hopefully for mm. April, to get two or three games live streamed, as well as a review on the podcast all in one week in April. Nice. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to that. That's that's pretty much all that is going on here, other than game day at HCHQ was fun. I made pork green chili for everybody, and everybody seemed to enjoy it, so that's always nice. Uh, anything going on on your end of the world? Other than, hey, we just bought a house. (laughs) Yeah, actually, just started a new job. Yes, uh, Monday. Could you do more (laughs) life-changing massive events uh, in in a short time frame? I suppose you could, but I don't want to. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, right? So congrats, I guess, right? Yeah. All right. So what do you do? Uh, I'm a software engineer. 
Wait, uh, in board games? Shocking. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, I used to be a, a research scientist uh, turned software engineer a few years back. Research scientist? Like, researching yeah. what? Oh, oh that's, I was... That's interesting. A, a toxicologist, so I... Uh, my postdoctoral studies was in the toxic effects of the VP oil spill on native fish. Nice. So yeah. I technically it's Dr. Brandon then, right? It is. Okay. Well, I apologize for not addressing <laughs> you properly, Dr. Brandon. No, no that's cool, man. That's awesome. Um, so, wow. That's uh, I, I'm amazed at the guests that I have on this show and how intelligent this community really is take for instance yourself and then there's god there's a plethora of doctors that are in this in the boston area that part of the game group and then like literal medical doctors as well as phds as well as uh sweater mike was a phd um and i i'm fascinated at the level of intelligence that that is in this community it's it's humbling seeing as I'm just a big dumb Marine. So that's, uh, that's pretty awesome. Very cool, man. So are you, you started this week, literally your new job? Yeah, literally. <laughs> and how's it going so far? Uh, so far so good. Uh, it's actually a manager that I worked with before, um, at a job about three years ago. Uh, he asked me out of the blue to, to come work for him. So it's a good spot to be in. Awesome, man. Well, congratulations. Thank you. All right. Anything else going on? I mean, just buying no, a house. I think and that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Well, let's talk gaming then. What you've been playing lately? All right. Yeah. The one of the ones I've been digging into lately is uh, Comancheria. Big solo game. Uh, not sure how I feel about it yet. It's not my normal style of game that I play. Well, it's a war uh, game, right? And it this is. is the follow-up to Navajo Wars. It is. Yes. Um, Navajo Wars I played once um, this one yeah it's a lot going on um, fair bit more randomness than I'm usually used to trying to, to tackle on but uh, I'm enjoying it for certain and the, uh, the history part of, of these games is really interesting so. alright so I'm curious So, because you mentioned train games obviously and, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, um, splatter stuff and everything earlier are yeah. you big into war games? No, not really. Um, this is one of the uh, first ones I've really been getting into. I got a supply lines of the American Revolution. I enjoyed that one a lot. Um, but yeah, aside from that, not. I mean, oh, I do have uh, some coin games. Okay, I do enjoy those. Those are All right. a little different, it seems, but they are. They're kind of their own animal. Um, they're yeah. I, I think their own animal is a good way to put it. Well, I'm curious to hear uh, how Comancheria um, develops as you play it more and more. Um, so, because that's supposed to be a more, I don't want to say streamlined, but kind of a, uh, it shows the growth in the designer from Navajo Wars to Comancheria. And I haven't played either. I just have them both and want to play them. I just have not gotten to them yet, but that's what I've read about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I could definitely see this one has been easier to start to grok for me. Uh, There's very similar mechanisms between the two, but yeah, I don't know. This one's only been uh, 
two and a half plays in. So it's still a long way to go to really to get it for me. Fair enough. All right. What else? Uh, let's see. I've been playing a very engaged in the Sioux line. Uh, finally getting some friends of mine to say, oh, these paper maps and cubes on a on the board are actually really good. Nice. So, so the uh, Hollenspiel slash Winsome uh, mm-hmm. games. Uh, how have they, okay, they've been willing to play them. How, what's the result oh, so they far? They have been very happy and surprised that uh, we have not been playing them more often. <laughs> <laughs> well done on converting, folks. Good stuff. Yes. How how have you enjoyed uh, the Sioux line? Because I've heard mixed things on that. I've enjoyed it. Uh, that one I've played less so far. Um, it's it's an odd odd bird uh, with only the the three companies that you're buying stocks in, regardless of how many players. Um, but I've I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed every one of uh, Tom's Russell's games so far. They're they're different than anything else I've ever played. Yeah, uh, Tom Russell, Cole Worley, Phil Eklund. Those three are kind of in their own little world, it feels like to me. Yes. So, yeah, I I, I duck, and I mean that as a complimentary thing. Oh, yeah, so do I. <laughs> yeah, totally. That It's just, it. there aren't other things like these things out there. So I agree with that. What else? Oh, yeah, going along the same lines, I guess. Uh, finally got 1868 uh, played. Came in the same year as the Iberian Cage from the, the Winsome set. Okay, uh, that's so that's last year's, I think? No, the, that was... 2017? Yes, that was a Okay, 2017. 2017 Winsome Collection. All right. And I haven't played that one yet. How how have you liked it? Um, uh, The group really liked it. Uh, it's a little... Uh, it plays faster. Uh, than I've been used to. Um, there's no doinks uh, in the way. A few simple rules have been kind of taken away. The um, trains go fast. <laughs> yes, if it's anything like 1857, um, the train rush in that game is painful. Yeah, yeah. We uh, Our first time we had to actually just restart because somebody completely hosed themselves. <laughs> <laughs> there's no shame in that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that was, that was a good time. We played that one twice this year so far. Um, uh, other ones coming up. Uh, I picked up the colonists again after it's been several months since I played that, but it was finally got to go through all four eras. Uh, that one I was on my own. That's why I was able to get all four. But How I, is I it held up? Because I keep looking at it up in my closet going, you know what? We need to stream this again. Uh, from it being one of the basement streams and I'm like I want to but I'm not excited about doing it so I'm curious how it held up for you oh for me it was really good I still enjoy it more than like it's one of the most Rosenberg like not Rosenberg game there is and I (laughs) agree 100% that's a perfect way to describe it and I definitely yeah (laughs) Yeah, the most Uwe Rosenberg game that isn't an Uwe Rosenberg game. Yes. Yes, and I've definitely still enjoyed that more than some of his later games. I agree with that statement. Speaking of Uwe Rosenberg, you also got Lahav on your list, yeah? Uh, yeah, uh, that one has uh, been 
I played that one a good bit solo. Uh, this last month was the first time I got to play it with other people again in a while. Yeah. But yeah, every time uh, Lahav is, is is a good game for me. It's my favorite Ube game. Every time it hits the table here, I look at it and I'm like, why aren't we playing this more? Every single time. Yeah. All right. Uh, so yeah, the uh, last game on my list is uh, Push It. Uh, just a little dexterity game I picked up a while back. It's kind of a poor man's um, crokinole almost. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's just a few discs. You place one out in the middle, flip towards it, whoever's closest wins points, and you do that for until you have enough points to do one. Almost sounds like, uh, and I, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of this probably, but uh, bocce ball or yes. whatever, like lawn bowling or whatever. Katonk or bocce, yeah. yeah. Right, okay, all right. But on a tabletop version, yep. right? Pretty okay. much, so good end of the night kind of okay. thing. Cool. Uh, that's pretty much all I have on, on my been playing. And for me, um, well, a lot of it is either stuff that we've streamed or going to stream just due to the nature of the show. But that said, a reef encounter has hit the table a couple of times, both on and on and off stream. And yes, I absolutely love that game. And in fact, Richard Breeze commented on the videos and uh, on my first impression video, which was really, and I uploaded that to the podcast, actually, it wasn't a true first impression. It was a first impression from a long hiatus type thing or, you know, hey, this is why I still dig this game. And he commented and said that, yeah, you did the game justice in so many words. And I'm like, okay, awesome. Mission accomplished then. Because, yeah, I do so love Reef Encounter, even though... I'm not, I mean, ultimately it kind of is an abstract as far as the manipulation of the tiles out there on, on the coral reefs and everything. But in, I, I usually am not the best at spatial games like that yet. There's something that just calls to me uh, with Reef Encounter that I just absolutely adore. And we're going to be reviewing that in a handful of weeks uh, a handful of weeks up to a couple months from now. And yeah, that's long overdue. And oh, a uh, spoiler. I love the game. So there's that. Have <laughs> yeah, you played you, it? I have. Uh, and actually you owe me a game because we were scheduled to play that at HeavyCon last year. We were. And I will remedy that the next time you and I get together, you have my word. All right. Sounds great. <laughs> All right. Uh, so what else? Uh, Cruel Necessity, obviously the uh, the solo game, The States of Siege game from victory point games and it's very procedural there's a ton of dice rolling and i don't want to spoil it if anybody has seen it but i enjoyed the game but i just don't know that i could have done a whole lot better than i did um maybe but i i enjoyed it nonetheless so i'm looking forward to playing more of those both on and off uh screen just uh uh, solo war games. I, I enjoyed that far more than I thought I was going to. And I did. Yeah. I actually, um, felt very similar with a, uh, another States of Siege game, uh, Dawn of the Zeds. Oh yeah. That's actually the one that people are saying, Hey, if you're going to play another one of those, play this one, um, which is, uh, uh, zombies. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And you enjoyed it. Um, uh I did as for as much as rolling dice over and over again. 
uh, could be enjoyable. Actually, I kind of did. Yeah, there's something, you know, just uh, kind of exercising the demons of we don't roll dice. These are heavy euros. We took our game seriously. And yet with war games, you've got to have that randomness, right? The ability of the improbable thing of happening uh, or else it just becomes, well, boring. And I think it fits. And so I'm glad to hear that uh, that one was enjoyable. That's good. Also got uh, the Cousins War, which is a cool little two-player tug-of-war type game. Um, Not really a CDG, sort of. See, actually it is kind of a CDG type game. Think of it along the lines of 13 days, 13 minutes, that type of kind of two-player little tug-of-war CDG. Yeah, I think that's a good comparison and really enjoyed it. It's about uh, the uh, English Civil War, so apparently there it's been a uh, hot topic lately since I have that and Cruel Necessity both under my belt recently and enjoyed that. That was a lot of fun once we um, got the rules right on how the comparisons of dice go. That was a me issue, but yeah, enjoyed it. Uh, Tony Boydell's company uh, put that one out and have a couple versions of that game and or a couple copies of that game and and really enjoyed it. Another one. So this one, boy, did this one miss the mark. And this one is Dear Congo. So it's the Ragnar Brothers. And the only other Ragnar Brothers game that I've tried up to this point is Nina and Pinta. And we weren't super keen on that when we did the review of that previously. And I was actually really, really excited about DR Congo and looking forward to it. And one of the guys that has been on a number of live streams as part of our game group up here, Chris, he was like, hey, you want me to learn that before game day? And I was like, oh, uh, you sure? Go ahead. Yeah, please. And so told it, he said it took him a week to learn the game, to understand it, and to prepare for to teach it to us on Sunday. And we went through it, and I was like, oh, this sounds pretty cool. And then we played it. And across the board, we made it about two or three rounds short of the game ending, and we were all in agreement. We were like, yeah, I think we can, I think we can stop here. I think we're all set. And part of that was due to a heavy amount of randomness in which the game just completely walloped one player through no fault of theirs. There was, they just got picked on by the game and it just didn't feel, it felt very arbitrary and it felt very random and that soured pretty much everybody on the multiplayer aspect of the game. However, I think it would do well as a solo game. And if you read some of the comments on BGG, that seems to be where folks most enjoy this game is as a solo play. So uh, that soft schedule that we have for Heavy Cardboard turned it from a four-player game to, oh, hey, it's going to be a solo playthrough now uh, and and see how that goes. I had heard from MaggieBot a couple of years ago, maybe a year and a half, two years ago, that when she played it, she played it with some of the... There's a core game, and then on top of the core game is the Insurgent game, and on top of that is another aspect of the game, and on top of that is another aspect. So you can kind of add these things in as you go along. And some of that 
the card draws on this just man as a multiplayer game and for as long and as quirky as the game is just way too much randomness and it was such a disappointment it was such a bummer have you have you by any chance played it i am actually completely unfamiliar with this one all right so dr congo um oh boy uh democratic republic of congo and it's about uh dealing with insurgents building up infrastructure i mean there's a lot of things that you would think i would that we as a group would like and it just just too much randomness. So you guys can Google it, check it out on BGG to see more or check out the uh, live stream when it does happen in the next couple of weeks. But as a multiplayer game, that was a, that was a pretty big miss overall for us. So Rand was here that evening and he brought a game that I'd never heard of. It's by, I believe he's an American designer but the game was published by a Korean company and the game is called Big Shot. So we all agreed that we needed kind of a palate cleanser after that game. And so he broke out Big Shot and I gotta be honest, 90% of the game I hated my experience throughout. And then it dawned on me that it felt like I was completely out of the game. There are, I don't know, let's call it 20 different auctions that will happen in this game. And each of these auction spots has a number of, I think it's four cubes in randomly put out there between the the players. So call it in a four player game, there's going to be four cubes and it could be two of mine, one of yours and one of theirs or whatever. And the whole point is when you win this auction, you start the game with 10 bucks and that's all the money you get in the game, unless you take loans and for every loan you take, it's you get, you pay more and more interest in the form of, okay, the first loan you take, you get nine bucks and it's worth negative point, 10 points at the end of the game. The second loan you take, you get eight bucks and it's another negative 10 points. And they're always negative 10 points, but you get one less dollar every time you take a loan. And so you can essentially auction and win as many auctions as you want. The whole point being, on this board, there are different areas worth various amounts of points at the end of the game. And money is points, points are money. So when you're auctioning, you're spending money, which is essentially points. And when one area has exactly seven cubes on it, what whoever has the majority in that area locks and wins that area. However, if two players are tied for the most, so say, for instance, Brandon, you and I each have three cubes there. And then let's say a Rand has one cube there. You and I cancel each other out. Rand wins the area because he's the one with the most that isn't tied. And it is terribly nasty, horribly nasty, brutally nasty. And I I had a piss poor attitude after getting almost all of my cubes wiped off the board to where the last 10% of the game, I had like four cubes left on the board. And like two left to auction. And had had Chris not competed with me in the last auction, I would have been able to manipulate things to where I would have won the game. And my mind was blown when I saw that. And how clever such a simple, ugly, mean game could be. And immediately we were like, 
we need to show this off. Hey, Rand, when can we do this? And so we put it on the soft schedule to be able to stream. So looking forward to doing that. It Think of it as thinky filler, but oh man, that was brutal. I hated it until <laughs> I didn't. So that was a lot of fun. Then uh, I'll quickly go through the rest of these. Uh, Blackout Hong Kong. I was really excited to play that. And then I played it. I didn't dislike it, but I wasn't really super keen on it. The latest from Alexander Pfister. We're going to be showing it off later on this month, but eh. That's eh. pretty much what I've been hearing about that one. Uh, and I got to be honest, dude, that theme, I mean, there's pasted on and then there's just non-existent. And this would be just non-existent. This was such a waste Blackout Hong Kong, like, okay, the city goes dark. Okay. And Hong Kong has a fascinating history and current modern day. It's amazing. And all that, and it doesn't touch on any of that. There is a map, like the outline of the area that I guess is Hong Kong, but you don't know that because it doesn't say it anywhere. There's no city, uh, you know, area name, nothing. And so it could be just a map of some made up place. You don't know, but there's just no theme. It's just completely wasted. Um, and the gameplay was enjoyable, but nothing exemplary. It wasn't, uh, it's no great Western trail. Let's put it that way, at least after one play. So there's that. 18 Lilliput. Um, we streamed uh, and played off camera. That was enjoyable and might be good for folks who were looking to dabble into the 18xx world without jumping in to a 1846, 1889 game. Um, it's fine for what it is, but the fact that there's no map in this game, in a sense that you build it wherever you want to build it, that messed with a few of our heads during that. But I've enjoyed it. Have you played it? I have not played that one yet. Okay. All right. Uh, race for the Chinese Zodiac. Wow. This was a surprise from the same designers as three kingdoms. Redux, uh, going to be in the capstone, simply complex line as opposed to their, their bigger games and a true race game. And I really thought that this was going to be, honestly, I thought it was going to be, yeah, it's fine. Right. And it made for one of the most memorable gaming experiences that I've had in a while. And it was a really, really, really great time that we had. And that was completely surprising to me. So that was, that was a pleasant surprise and it funded on Kickstarter. So I'm glad to see that for clay as well as Yowster and Christina, the designers, then there's Shogun obsession, uh, which we streamed and I've talked about a little bit and ground floor second edition, which I gotta be honest, I enjoyed ground floor probably more than I should have the original edition and the second edition improves on the game across the board in every way. And we're going to be showing that off later on this week and everybody who played it this weekend loved it. So looking forward to playing that some more as well. Yeah. My only experience with ground floor has been this second edition and I really enjoyed that one. Yeah. Across the board, everybody enjoyed it here as well. So so yeah, that's what I've been playing. Uh, Acquisition-wise, what you, uh, what have you uh, blown money on, one way or the other? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so as far as Kickstarter goes, uh, I actually just received today Black Sonata, which is a small filler uh, solo hidden movement and deduction game. 
Okay. I was surprised. How, how does that work as a solo game? Yeah, that, that's where they were really clever with that one. Uh, so there is a deck of cards, which kind of programs the movement of uh, this hidden character. So idea is that you are trying to track down Shakespeare's love interest from his sonatas, The Dark Lady. And you're running around London looking for her. And these, this deck of cards um, have on the backside uh, silhouettes in different places. And the location that you're at has another card that matches the same size, but there's holes cut into it so that when you place that card with the hole punched into it underneath it, you could flip the deck over. You could see if you actually have seen that she's been there or not. That sounds clever. It is. And so I'm pretty excited to try to, to try that one. Well, good. I'm, uh, I'm anxious to read this in the Slack, how that goes. That sounds, yeah, that sounds clever and, and ingenious. So, okay, cool. Right. Uh, yeah. And then similarly uh, with hidden movement, I received for Christmas escape from the aliens from outer space in outer space. Um, that one's a, I don't know as much about it. A friend of mine gave it to me for Christmas, but I do know it's divisive uh, because how many things are going on and everybody is hidden from everybody else. Uh, You're trying to traipse around through a derelict spaceship and try to not be attacked and eaten by aliens. So, Okay. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. What else? Uh, So... Uh, mentioned supply lines earlier. Uh, right. And this is the Southern strategy because this is like the second version or the second uh, in that series, right? That's correct. So I was able to pick that up from uh, somebody in the herd uh, for a pretty good deal. Um, and the last one on my list is Polarity, which is an odd, it's sold as a strategic dexterity game. So you have magnetic pieces. They're black and white on so think Othello pieces. Okay. And uh, there's a canvas mat uh, where you're trying to place these magnetic disks uh, to where they semi-hover uh, against stacks of disks. And if they flip over, then your opponent collects those and whoever can collect all of the all of them, or the majority of the disks is the winner. Uh, so, huh. So it's you have to one. balance it with the magnetic field type thing? Correct. And ah. apparently it gets to where one wrong move can just chain react and the entire board will flip over. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, I'd like to see that in play. Yeah, I'd like to check that out. That's cool. So what have you been uh, bringing into the house? Uh, so let's see. Um the first one that I just got in the mail was Coffee Traders. This is the next really big game from the designers of Wildcatters, Andre Spiel and Rolf Segel. And when I say big game, I do mean big game, both in physical footprint as well as, wow, there is a lot going on in this game. I've played it the last two years at Essen now and got to say that if you enjoy these heavy, uh, there's a lot going on and a lot to track, but a theme that also makes sense being set in the 1960s and 70s around the world and trading, harvesting and trading coffee, then this is going to be a uh, game that's probably going to interest you. Just got the prototype in the mail and 
Yeah, can't wait to show that off to the local group and potentially the world uh, with the prototype if we end up streaming this down the road as well. Another that I got that is a very nice uh, production value prototype is Cargo Express, which is kind of a a spiritual successor to Cargo Train from Christoph Matusik. This is going to be coming to Kickstarter from uh, the folks over at Compass Games. So we're going to be showing that one off later on in a couple weeks. Let's see what else. Apollo, the game of our first voyages to the moon. I know nothing about this game. It's supposed to be thinky filler and with a fair bit of randomness to show how difficult it was to actually get the Apollo rocket up to the moon, the the folks flying in the Apollo and yeah, or on the Apollo missions. And that sounds interesting. So I'll be checking that out. And speaking of rockets, even though this is a land-based one, got a copy of Stevenson's rocket uh, from guy in the herd at one of the small council members, James. Uh, He actually, really strongly disliked that game and was like, you had mentioned that you wanted to give that a try and uh, here, I will send it to you. And I was like, uh, you sure? He was like, yes, please take it. And I was like, uh, okay, cool. So going to check that out and hopefully show that off to folks in the herd as well. But other than that, that's it. Kind of a quietish last few weeks on my end. Um, anything you're hunting currently, Brandon? Uh, yeah, I'm looking at in the next month some things hitting hitting Kickstarter. The uh, new the Underworld expansion for Root. Yes, and that sounds really exciting. Yes, it does. I had uh, been looking at some of the um, materials uh, that have been shared by Leader Games uh, before with some of the creatures from this expansion. They do look exciting. Uh, then also. Uh, the deluxe edition of Age of Steam. You betcha with the Inno Tools artwork and Eagle Griffin's production quality. Yep, sign me up. And uh, what are you looking to to get? Um, a couple that are a little bit more like soon. Uh, this Guilty Land, I really, really want to get a copy of that to be able to both play it as well as show it off on the show. Um, even though uh, speaking to Tom Russell earlier, I don't know if he's going to be super thrilled with that because uh, <laughs> I don't know that he wants a whole lot of attention on that game, but I think it's an important game. I think it's the way it handles this, I think is is really well done and or from what I've heard, and I want to get a copy and I want to play this. So there's that. Then there's a game that kind of came out of nowhere for me, at least. Banker Dave reached out to me. Um, and is like, hey, have you heard anything about this game called Dinogenics? And I was like, uh, uh-uh. And apparently it's kind of a Dinosaur Island-esque game that apparently some people are saying is on par or better than Dinosaur Island. Okay, well, I'll check it out. So looking forward to getting a copy of that as well. And then three games that are coming up, um, one of which you just mentioned, which was The Age of Steam reprint the latest edition and uh albin viard over at uh, av studio games uh he's been tweeting out pictures of him and you know tool working together on the new deluxe edition of clinic and oh boy that looks awfully purdy that looks really really good so looking forward to that that's a ways out though and a little bit more 
uh, this year for sure. Um, Yinzi from Spielworks as well as Rola Costa, which I saw first at LyriaCon last year. And yeah, looking forward to checking that game out because really enjoyed our plays of it or our play of it at LyriaCon when it was in prototype form to where literally changes were getting made as we were playing the game. So I'm curious to see what the final version of that turns out to be because really enjoyed it even in its unfinished version there. Yeah, I also got a chan- uh, chance to play that one at uh, HeavyCon with Uli, uh, and I really enjoyed it, even though it was pretty early uh, in in the process of yep, yep. being developed. So, cool. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it for sure. Uh, so what are you looking forward to playing here sooner rather than later, if at all possible? The one on my list of the games that I have that have just not gotten played yet is Antiquity. I mm. I know it is the one slaughter game that I have that I have not played yet, and I don't know why I haven't gotten anybody else to want to play it with me yet. But it's it's soon. Well, the two things I will warn you: don't spend your last wood without a source of wood, and the number two thing is. Pollution is a horrible, horrible thing. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's another fiddly game, which we're going to be talking about fiddly here in a little bit. So Spoilers. yeah. <laughs> yep. As far as on my end, this has been kind of tricky lately because the games that I'm most looking forward to playing, I got to be honest, been pretty underwhelming as a whole. And the ones that I just happen to play or that, you know, yeah, uh, just came up. Hey, do you want to play this? Uh, okay, sure. We weren't planning on it, but those seem to be the most enjoyable experiences. So honestly, I'm kind of hesitant to put anything on this list because if I'm anticipating it and it's newer now, the older games, uh, Reef Encounter and stuff like that, Shogun and things like that that have been uh, that have more established games, those have been a joy to get back to the table, but the new games and yeah, they've been pretty suspect for the most part. That said two games that I've at least played before I'm looking forward to playing some more and that's millennium blades and Churchill. Could those two be more different? I mean, seriously, but, uh, but yeah, both of those I'm looking forward to getting to the table, which if I'm getting them to the table, that means they're probably coming to the YouTube channel sooner rather than later. So yeah, looking forward to those. This review's been a long time coming. I'm excited to bring it to you guys. And that is Feudum, published in 2018, designed by Mark Swanson, artwork by Justin Schultz, published by Oddbird Games, which is Mark's publishing company. Plays two to five players. However, it does also play solo with an expansion. Playtime says 80 to 180 minutes. More on that later. Uh, as far as availability and cost, you can find it online for roughly about 55 bucks, at least the base game, and plays and player counts that we've experienced. I have five plays of the game, and that ranges from three to five players on my end. How about you, Brandon? Uh, I have about five or six plays of the base game at four or five, and then a two plays solo. 
with okay you. cool so you'll be able to talk about the solo game in this tonight so that's good i'm glad i apologize about the two-player game folks my bad forgive me also uh before we get started i want to mention that the game does offer a basic version but i gotta be honest with you never played it I feel it strips far too much out of the game to be of interest to me or honestly, many of y'all that are listening to this, it feels that it strips out even more than something like a spinning Jenny versus a waterframe in Arkwright. So just FYI, have you played it, Brandon? No, I, we pretty much refused to play that that way. And okay. especially once we realized there's a situation where the uh, interaction between the monk and um, farmer guild can become impossible to actually use. Okay. So <laughs> needless to say, we're going to be talking about the advanced version of the game, which is in my opinion, the full game here. That said, you want to tell folks what's going on in Feudum? Sure. In Feudum, you play Lords, I guess uh, you've been banished from your homelands and find yourself in a new land with just a bit of food and money, but a world of options in front of you. Over the course of the game, you'll be jockeying for position in each of six guilds with unique interactions between each other uh, by putting out your associated pawns and fighting for control of the lands that bolster your position, upgrading these locations to ultimately gain feudums, which can launch your influence to ensure your master status in the guilds. You may focus on traveling around the world, uh, around the board, spreading your dominion over all the regions and along the way be known for your voyages, or you may just focus on objectives you've gained through other actions. Each round, you are going to choose four cards or a fifth uh, for some extra resources, and you're limited to the actions of these cards. These actions can range from attacking your foes, taxing people for much-needed cash. More often than not, this will be interacting with or between the guilds, either purchasing resources directly or transferring goods between them for points. Uh, you will repeat these steps over a number of rounds. Uh, that number is determined by the rate at which players are upgrading locations. Uh, the players with the most points at the end is the winner. There you go. Sounds simple enough, but boy... <laughs> It's not. That said, let's go ahead and start talking about the five factors that give the game its weight or contribute to its weight, in our opinion, starting off with the uh, complexity or the rules overhead, the rules complexity. Oh, there is a lot of rules in this game. Yeah, the, uh, this is by uh, carte blanche. I can say without a doubt, this is the most involved teach that I've ever had to do for a game thus far. In the years that I've both been teaching games and before I had the podcast and YouTube channel, there is a lot to remember. There's a lot to track. There's lots of edge cases in Chrome that can and will likely trip people up. It, just the rules overhead is legitimately significant in this game. There is a lot of stuff here. There is. And this is offset some by some mostly complete player raids. Uh, there's a fair amount still missing from those. But for how much there is, they do a commendable job with those oh, player I raids. Oh, I totally agree. The player aid is invaluable. You have to have the player aid. But even so, kind of like what you said, not all the information is on there. So you're still going to be... I don't care how good you are with this game, unless you're playing this game over and over in short periods of time 
you're gonna you're gonna have a well worn rule book. You're gonna be referencing things in the rule book uh, quite a bit, especially for your first couple plays. Um, and every other time, if you're not playing this in short succession, in my experience, at least. That said, the game itself, the gameplay isn't as difficult as you would. It's made out to be, but there's just a lot of rules overhead. There's just the sheer quantity of stuff here. Yeah, I agree. Most of the mechanisms are easy enough if you played any other games. They're just edge cases in just the sheer number. Yep, agreed. Moving on to the planning aspect or, you know, the decision matrix. How far down, how much more do you have to plan, you know, tactical versus strategic, et cetera, et cetera. Every round there is a planning stage where there's a subset of cards that are going to be chosen uh, from the full set and those are what you're stuck to for the round so you better have decided what you're going to do right i mean you you have 11 cards i i think it's 11 cards in your hand from which to choose and like you said during the intro you're going to get four cards possibly a fifth card or double up a card for those that you're allowed but all that planning is done before the round begins and so you have the information in front of you as far as what you're trying to do. You have the current board state, but then you have the other two, three, four opponents and what they're trying to do and how they're going to interact with those things and trying to best position yourself for planning out your entire round right now based on what you're trying to do and what your opponents are going to do. And this kind of makes me think back on a review that we did uh, a number of weeks ago, something like a smartphone ink, where all the entire round, I feel like the majority of the decisions are done in that very pre-planning phase where you're setting up your little boards and everything. Whereas here in Feudum, it's completely different. Even though you're planning out your cards and you're planning out what it is that, the you know, in theory, in a perfect world, I'm going to play this card, do these actions. I'm going to play this card, do these actions. But rarely does it actually work out that way because, oh yeah, you have two, three, four other opponents trying to mess with you or doing things in a way that does mess with you. And so you're having to adjust a ton in this game. So even though it's front-loaded as far as what actions you can do and what actions you're going to be doing, what you actually do when you play these cards, there's a little bit of wiggle room in that. And some, there's a lot of wiggle room if you're playing something like the guild card to where, yeah, uh, you still have a plethora of <laughs> decisions that you're going to be making throughout the round, not just in this pre-planning phase. Yeah. And um, so, like we said, there's interactions with those other players. You're also having to consider how much you're going to be helping them with those guild uh, interactions, you're going to be pushing uh, goods into something they're going to need. Um, some tasks are going to take a couple rounds in order to prepare for. Uh, so you're not just thinking about your current round now, but things you're going to need even into the next epoch and scoring yeah, and, and this game gives you enough rope in which you can hang yourself because, and I'm going to allude to this later on, 
that you can't exactly pivot on a dime in this game. It's more a very slow, gentle turn um, that takes a little while to actually execute. And so, like you just said, the level of planning that you have to do, something you do in this round might not actually come to fruition for another two or three rounds down the road. So you really do have to plan out even as tactical as this game can feel, you do have to plan out quite a bit down the road. All right, moving on to the luck and random factors in this game. It has dice, sort of, but you don't really roll them because they're not dice, they're characters. That's true, except for the one exception of the uh, die that determines which of the landscape tiles come out between Good rounds. point. Yep. Uh and then we also have availability of farm goods and seeding goods onto the board. Those come out randomly uh, from the haversack. Uh, rosary beads, you have a couple instances where that could be random, both in which ones can come over from the noble monk guild. Or, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From the noble into the monk guild. And then also which ones you are trading or pushing into the farmer guild. Right, because chickens need their rosary beads. Wait, what? Of course. <laughs> yeah, right? Um, but, oh, yeah, I will say, the game has a haversack. I don't know why I like that, but haversack. It, yeah. Instead of it just being a bag, it's a haversack. I love that, by the way. Uh, yeah, going along with those, uh, one of the bigger uh, sources of random factors is probably the royal writ cards. Yeah, end game goal cards, right? Yeah, within those. Yeah, those are all randomly assigned. Well, not assigned, but randomly drawn. There's at least the benefit in that you can draw multiple at a time and then select from those. Um, yeah, but yeah, back to the end of round landscape tile removal. That could be as big as actually even triggering the end of an epoch or game scoring. And if you're not prepared for it, it can not necessarily catch you unaware. Like everyone's going to know that it could happen. Right. But, but there's that, well, I really would prefer if it doesn't happen. And there's not a whole lot of way to mitigate it if other players are pushing the speed of the game mm -hmm. and shooting and making it to where even though there is a fair bit of randomness in that die roll in that it could be. The players are determining how likely that is to happen or how unlikely that is to happen. So even though there's that randomness, it's still some amount of control as well as it's open information that you know there's a possibility that it could end and move into the next epoch whether you're ready or not. Correct. Yeah. And our first game that caught us completely unawares because our last uh, like the end game scoring just happened kind of anticlimactic, but yeah. But at least you, you had the information in front of you yes. that you knew it could happen. Now, whether or not you're prepared for it, that's, that's a player issue, right? So right. even though there's that random factor, there's that. So moving on to the game length there, boy, this game, uh, depending on if you have new players or you have players that suffer from analysis paralysis, this game can uh, <laughs> run a bit long. <laughs> That's kind of yeah. like saying I kind of like food. Um, 
yeah, this game can be a marathon session. Now, not every game is going to be like that, but the game absolutely with a, our first game, I think was upwards of about five hours for our first game. Yeah. That sounds about on par with us too. And that was a four and a half player game. Um, in a sense that the fifth player had to leave partway through. So okay. we turned it into a four player game, but, uh, yeah, depending on certain aspects of the game, it can either it can go a while. It's not going to be a short game ever, I don't think. Yeah, and uh, at least like we were mentioning earlier, you can kind of control the rate of the game with the rate at which you're upgrading locations because of the way that epochs are triggered by so many of the next epoch tile being visible which is done by upgrading those tiles Correct. so if or upgrading the uh, location so if a player or multiple players are focused on upgrading their landscape tiles this game's going to run on the shorter side but it's still never going to be a short game so i definitely think that the uh the the game length does contribute cuz i think even when you get experienced players you're still looking at 45 minutes per player I would say thereabouts 40 to 45 minutes uh, without a teach, I think is a fair estimate. So I, I think that three hours at a max player count is a bit ambitious, but maybe some players out there can do it. We haven't been able to yet. And then there is at least that one randomly removed tile each round that kind of helped move it along. Although that's really not too much. So even though if players aren't focusing on upgrading their landscape tiles, the game's still going to methodically, you know, move along. However, it's likely that at least some mix of the players will be doing that. So between the game and those players, it the game should move along. And in theory, the turns themselves shouldn't take too terribly long, just for the simple fact that, okay, you've planned out your turn. But where that kind of changes a bit is when players do things that either disrupt what it was that you were doing or did something completely unexpected to where you're like, oh, now I need to adjust to that. How can I, given the cards that I programmed to be able to do that? And so that's where some of that added time comes in. Yeah, especially losing one of your pawns in a round. Well, <laughs> that'll put you in a hole. It, it will, because all of a sudden I was planning on doing this with this this pawn. Oh, wait, now it's off the board? Oh, it doesn't happen terribly often, but it can happen. So that's something to be aware of on that. As far as the getting it factor, how long does it take to, to understand and, and make sense of the game? It's going to take pretty much a whole game to really see everything that happens, but it's going to take a good bit more than that to, to understand oh yeah I, I mean a couple rounds to see all of the actions right in well action and then yeah at least a full game sometimes i would make a case that you're going to need multiple games to be able to see the why on everything which is the hardest thing to understand in a given game especially the more complex or the heavier the game, the harder and the more opaque that game is, the harder it is to understand the why, because, okay, I've read rule books to where I'm like, okay, all of this makes sense. Sure. I understand this. And then you sit down and you're like, I have no idea what the hell I'm doing. 
I have no clue. And this game is very sandboxy in that regard to where, and we're going to touch on this here in a little bit, it's wide open. And so you have so many options to where you're like, uh, what am I doing and why am I doing it? And you fumble around. And honestly, it took me into my third play to really get a good feel for things. I believe it took me about three games before I felt like I was really being able to have a very solid plan. And the only reason I was doing it as well as everybody with me played it just as many times. I I agree. And it's, I think uh, uh, somebody uh, that I was playing with recently said that I finally got to a point. I, I think it was in my third game to where I felt like I was playing the game and the game wasn't playing me. And I think that that should illustrate either a, I'm a big dumb Marine or the game is pretty opaque in that regard that it's really hard to see the things and the why behind it on that first, maybe even your second play. And so I think there's that, that shows just how much there is to this game, which ultimately, I mean, where do you think, where do you feel this game falls weight wise? This one, I, it's, Medium heavy, bordering heavy. Uh, like I said, the rules themselves, like they're all a bunch of s- simple rules um, for the most part. There's just so many of them. So keeping all of that in your head and making so many plans, it's it leans towards heavy. Yeah, I, I agree. I think this is on the heavier side of medium heavy. Like, and here's the thing, like, I'm trying to compare it to something like a high frontier, right? Which I feel like is super heavy. I mean, universally yes. known as a really heavy game or some of the meteor war games that I've encountered. And this isn't even talking about the the monster war games. I always say that war games are kind of their own animal and shouldn't be compared to euros. That said for a euro, this is way up there as far as uh, weight and complexity and all of these things integrated, how long you're going to be sitting at the table and having to engage your brain and how, you know, it, it takes a few games to get there to make sense of it. Even though it does have a fair bit of randomness, it's not an, for the weight of the game, I don't feel like it's, it has a huge impact in the game. So all those things considered, this is arguably one of the heavier Euro style euro-esque games that you're going to encounter and so yeah this is yeah all those things factored in this is this is a big boy game this is a a big one all right so moving on to the cardboard side or i say the cardboard but really the components in general what you got yeah this they did not spare expense on on the components on this one the beasts they're fantastic. Those are well-painted, pre-painted composite minis. Uh, there's only two in the base game, but they're pretty awesome. Um, the behemoth and the serpent is, or the, what is, uh, it's like Nessie. I, yeah. I don't know what it, what, I can't remember the name, but yeah, the behemoth, it which is, is the abominable snowman-esque, and then the serpent thing. 
I think it's actually Enans because it's just, no, it's Ecans. I think it's okay, snake backwards or serpent backwards. I can't remember. Okay. All right. There you go. But yeah, they are really, they're, dare I say cute and, they and they're well produced, right? Absolutely. And all of the cardboard, like the actual cardboard in the box and the box itself is superb. Like it's on the level of some of the Eagle Griffin games, deluxe edition, I think. Which I feel like those are kind of the uh, the benchmark for a really highly produced, uh, really top-notch component quality game. And I completely agree with you on all of that. Just top-notch production, very pleased with it. Lavish, I think is a good way to describe it. Agreed. Um, the wooden bits in the game, uh, so most of the cubes and the discs, it seems like it's a less dense kind of wood, so it's not as chunky and, and heavy as some of the other stuff. And so it kind of just doesn't quite match the rest of the quality, but still usable. Agreed. And the cubes themselves oh, are they're tiny. tiny. Yeah, they they're, are, uh, they're not even choking hazards because they're <laughs> too small to be choking hazards. They're, um, the thing that I do like about them, and this is going to sound probably stupid, but... I like the vibrant colors that they chose in this. I like how they pop, which I think this game needs uh, for the components to be like, to be able to see them on a very artistic board in the, in the artwork and graphic design aspects that they chose. I think the bright colors of those cubes um, really helps. However, I do agree that it feels, they feel less weighty, or their size, but they're smaller. So there's that. I don't know. Overall, really high marks. I would say though, on uh, on component quality. However, <laughs> the board shape and size, in my opinion, was kind of a pretty big misstep. It's skinny and long, so it's wide, but it's skinny. Um, which makes it really difficult to see the opposite corner of the board and all the information that's there. We're going to touch more on that when we get into the graphic design, but plus as somebody who has the stream games also, um, that board was really aggravating. (laughs) I can see that. I mean, it does fit nicely on the table. You fit around it, but I agree. It's, it's hard to see what's going on in the guild on the opposite side. Yes. Uh, the box size is almost 17 inches by almost 11 and a half inches by three and a half inches, or call it 43 by 29 by nine centimeters. So it's a it's a pretty good size box. It's a big one. Uh, it barely fits to where it could fit in my Kalex shelf, um, but it does. It just sticks out the behind on the back end of it. Um, and then I got the big box pledge. Uh, from the Kickstarter, so all the expansions are inside, and I'm pretty thankful of that because the size of the boxes for those for the very little bit of components is just ridiculous. Oh, for the expansions? Yes, like these- I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm still waiting for Mark to send me uh, uh, the the rest of the stuff. I haven't, I, I have the the base game, but I, I don't have any of the expansion stuff, so I can't speak to it. So I'll take your word for it. But yeah, I have uh I have Expedit slash Calyx shelves here as well. And um, it's funny. You say yours sticks out the back. Mine sticks out the front uh, a couple of inches. It's a big box, but it 
Everything fits in the base box, at least. Oh, right? yeah. Like, all the expansions and everything fit in the base box. Okay. So there's that. With room. <laughs> all right. All right. Moving on to the graphic design here. <laughs> so the symbology, at least, iconography, uh, I found that it was pretty competent, uh, with some exceptions. Uh, the iconography is kind of new, so it doesn't go with what you would see in some other games. Uh, but for the amount of information that's there, there's a good job. So on that note, I disagree, but I, I would say it's a mixed bag at yes. best. And I think that's being generous here. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you talk about the symbology and you actually bring up a fair point. The fact that the iconography that is used is not stuff that we are for lack of a better way to put it trained as gamers to expect it yes. to be, or, or it's not going to be super intuitive off the top of your head. So that's a fair point. I get that for me. The issue is in the attempt to make it language independent, the mm-hmm. iconography was reduced down to a level that the iconography is there, but it still forces players to reference the rule book every single game to understand the iconography. Now, obviously, if you're playing this game once a week with your group, you know, for a number of months, okay, that's not going to happen to you. But that's going to be the exception to the rule. Mm-hmm. I guarantee you that if you don't, if you sit down and you play this game and you don't play it again for a month or two, you're going to have to go back and reference the rule book to refamiliarize yourself with the iconography. Even though maybe by the end of the game, the iconography is familiar to you and it'll make sense. But I still have to go back to the rule book every single game. Agreed. That's that's my gripe there with it, at least. Yeah, and on top of all that is, like I said, for the most part it's there, but there are times where things just seem to be missing. Um, I don't know if that was rules, some of those extra rules and side cases that were added after the art was already done or what, but it seems that way sometimes. Um, like, just to go back to these crazy rosary beads and chickens. (laughs) Um, Still cracks me up every time. Every time. And then likewise, the only reason that sometimes those will go away from the farm, but only if you've played the special action of the starve the people with the noble card. Um, And that's not shown on the card. Not at all. (laughs) So there's a perfect example of the uh, inconsistency, I think is a good way to put it. Yeah. Correct. Um, let's see. The one that always gets us also is there's no distinction really between when it's fine to just have a particular pawn in play versus one at the local affected area. There are a couple actions. I can't remember offhand which ones, but you actually have to have that pawn at a location in order to get the effect. And that's just not consistent. I mean, it's not there. And it's not called out. You don't, there's nothing on the card that shows, oh, you have to have a pawn there for this action to trigger or whatever. Yes. Agreed. And Uh, then there's the (laughs) uh, pain point, I think is a good way to put it. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) To where the, the goods prices in a market, are hidden underneath the cubes when you actually put the cubes in a market so you can't see what the cost is. 
Really? Come on. Yep, that's it's pretty bad. And of course, the only way to look is pick them up and everybody knows that's what you're trying to figure out to do. Right. So you can't. Well, what we got in the habit of is actually moving them off center to where people can Mm -hmm. read them. But again, this is something that should have been addressed on that. And then the refilling of the cubes and the the compass uh, points, the directions, those are super tiny on the board uh, in their location and they're hard to find. It's always a group effort to try and find where they are on the board. Be like, okay, we're looking for Northeast. Okay. Over there. Up oh, there it is. Got it. There's one. Where's the next one? And, and even, just, sorry, even which region those actually even go to. <laughs> the, and that's another thing, right? Uh, differentiating the regions on the board isn't always super clear at a glance, yeah. big islands or the Island area. And so there's that. Then there's the starting locations for your workers, which is more than just during setup, since players' actions can actually bring new workers onto the board into those locations. Those are covered up when you Mm -hmm. put markers out on the board. And then the graphics used to differentiate the travel modes all over the board. Oh boy, is this (laughs) a point of contention for me. So especially in and around the water, but also the ferries. Mm-hmm. They're just too small to see this stuff clearly unless you are right over it. Which brings me to the biggest issue graphic design wise that I have, which is just the way that the board is laid out as a whole. In my humble opinion, the map part of the board could have been used for the entire size of the board. If they were committed to that size board, make that the entire map area and then make the guilds a second board mm-hmm. to where it could be all six guilds right there all next to one another so that 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 helps two things number one it helps so that it's a more standard size board or that the iconography is just larger so it's easier to see stuff if you're going to put the artwork as first and foremost that it seemed to at some point but also the Changing, uh, going from one guild on the edge all the way across the board to the other end of the board for the the guild that it feeds into, that would have been a whole lot easier if they were all on one board in a, you know, stacked up two, two, two right next to one another. Oh, that's aggravating to me. <laughs> it is aggravating. And one thing I uh, did notice um, with the... Go ahead and mention the fact there's another Kickstarter coming up pretty soon for a new expansion. But with that, I don't know why they need it. <laughs> but with that, uh, there is a jumbo mat, uh, which unfortunately does make everything further away from each other. They're harder to see. One of the things they've mentioned trying to address is the differentiation between the, the bubbles and the, the waves for the submarine versus that. I don't know if it's enough, but (laughs) I just, the graphic design choices that they made here, I think, I mean, how many times have I heard some version of, Oh, my sub can't travel there. I thought the bubbles were there. Nope. Those are waves. You can't. Oh, because they're sitting on the other end of the table and you can't tell this stuff. And (laughs) yeah, just that's frustrating. And the worst is there's a bit of water that goes to one of the locations and that has neither bubbles nor submersibles. And, but it's water, but you can't get there from either of the vessels. And that's right. not very clear. 
I just, I get frustrated whenever the game hits the table due to these things is I really enjoy the production quality of the game, but the graphic design choices just, it, it impedes the ability to play the game. And that mm. is the absolute cardinal sin of graphic design to where if you're choosing form over function, boo on you because ultimately I need to be able to play this game and it needs to hit the table. But if players as a group are like, uh, wait, I can't even see that over there. Yeah. If that's going to impede our ability to get this to the table, how is that good for anybody involved in that process? Yeah. And unfortunately, last time we played, uh, one of my friends actually has some slight vision impairment problems. He was having a really rough time, even down to the normal roads that you see on the, on the map, because there's no delineation between art versus the design of what connects locations. Um, they roll behind hills and things like that. And it's completely unlike um unable to, to see sometimes. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. Well, there is nothing here that is game breaking. It's just a series of unfortunate decisions mm -hmm. that make things more difficult than they need to be. And worst of all, it breaks up the flow of play and it kind of just things slog along, but also it just, and everybody that's listening to this can, can appreciate every game kind of has a, has a rhythm to it right to where everybody's kind of into it and you're the game's just kind of moving along and things like this interrupt that rhythm and it's at those moments those are the moments that you notice the passage of time and that's the worst thing the game can do if you're trying to be invested in this game and i'm not even talking about theme here i'm talking about just you're engrossed in the gameplay or maybe you're engrossed in the theme. It can go either direction. I'm cool with that. I see that. But if the graphic design or the rules or something like that is going to break that flow and that immersion, well, now all of a sudden, wow, now I kind of feel that passage of time and I feel how long we've been sitting here at this game. And that is the worst thing that a game can do, I feel like. Sorry, I feel strongly about it. This has been a long time coming. I've been griping about this for months and months. Got that off my chest. Yeah, just aggravated about the graphic design choices on this. Mm -hmm. However, on the flip side of things, we have the artwork. Yeah, and although you can't delineate the art from the graphic design sometimes, the art is one of the most striking parts of the game. Uh, there's some complaints I've heard. Uh, but I really like the aesthetic of this psychedelic fantasy land, almost on the par with like Yellow Submarine or something like that. Uh, but it turns heads every time that we have it out. Yeah, it's 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 striking, a uh, whimsical and distinct is, is what I wrote down in my notes here. I have no idea what to call it. I really don't, but I enjoy it. Um, the artwork, like, like you said, it, it can be a bit divisive, um, but I do enjoy it and not everybody I've played with has enjoyed it, but honestly, that's the job of artwork, right? Is to make you feel something and make you just evoke emotion one way or the other. And I think it does its job perfectly in that regard, but at no point ever should the artwork trump 
so should form Trump function. They should live harmoniously together. But if you're going to err on one side, it has to be on the function side. And I don't think that's necessarily the case, but I appreciate how pretty it is. It is very pretty. <laughs> Moving on to the rule book, as far as the, the clarity and quality, I got to be honest. I think overall, considering the amount of stuff that's here, overall, the rule book does a pretty, pretty good job. Agreed. Yeah. The, for the base game, the rule book is very good. The, uh, some of the expansion booklets, not so much, but that's a separate thing. <laughs> um, no, no, go ahead. Go ahead and, well, talk about uh, both of them, actually. So start start with the base game. Yeah, base game. I primarily learned from the playthrough uh, that you had, you had done uh, a year ago, I guess. Um, and then the yeah, official- I think it was a year ago this month, uh, yeah. last month, one or the other. And the official video, which I suggest nobody try to learn the game from. It's great for review when it's been a few months since you've played but all that condensed into like 25 minutes it's 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 actually 28 minutes yes and it is really impressive but it is just too much information for me to absorb like that but yeah i think the rule book does a really good job overall um there were only a few things that i had to get clarification from from mark when i was preparing for uh that teach on that and I know you had mentioned that there's what somewhere around 200 rules questions. Yeah, when I checked, over on BGG, it, it was like just under 200, and I don't know why. I, I actually, I think I do know why. I think a lot of people wound up backing this on Kickstarter, not thinking how heavy of a game it was, despite Mark making every effort to really let people know that this is a heavy game and not to be taken lightly, but. Yeah, there's 198 rules questions. And just FYI, like I said, the game came out in 2018. So it's been out for, let's call it a year-ish, thereabouts. Now, a lot of these questions are various, you know, solo, you know, different player count stuff and everything, and then edge case stuff. But I think the rule book did a better job than 200 rules questions in a year, personally. I agree. Um, that's not to say that it's the best I've ever read or referenced, but I think it does a pretty good job of what it set out to do. And as much as I normally gripe about rule books for games, no, I, I, I think this gets pretty solid marks in my opinion here. Yeah, it even has a bit of the same quirky humor that matches the uh, the art. It the game. does. And I, I like stuff like that. Like where do it doesn't it doesn't go too far with it, but it's mm-hmm. just enough. Right? Right. So moving on to the setup, teardown, teaching, and learning. All right. Let me be honest. To date, this is the only game that I have said I will not teach again. Flat out. I just will not. I have had players come to game day saying, Hey, you want to play Feudum? And I ask him, have you watched a video on how to play it or read the rule book? And they say, no. I said, nope, not happening. Uh, yeah, I, they either, I ask him to either watch the live stream teach, which I'll be honest, an hour and 17 minutes. That's how long it took me to go through the entire teach of this game or the condensed animated rules teach, which we just talked about, which 
perfectly edited down with zero downtime and still clocks in at 28 minutes. And I am just not capable of digesting information that fast with the quantity of information that is. So yeah, if you want to play this game with me, you have to understand the game before we get started. I will never teach this game again. Yeah, I've taught the game five times now. That was my request every time. <laughs> Unfortunately, we've had some people show up that I started watching one of the videos, but <sighs> already had that on the books. Um, but yeah, at the height of us playing, I think around the third, fourth time, I got it down to like 45 minutes because only one person was new. And so there were fewer questions and things like that. But yeah, this last time to review for this took me about an hour and a half. To teach the game. To teach the game. There were lots of questions, but still. Yep. And setup is relatively easy, right? As long as you have stuff organized, it's not terrible. It's not a bad setup. Uh, I, I would be honest that this is a much easier setup than something like Tricurian. Um, mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So there's not a lot there. And as far as the teach goes, honestly, send people to one of the videos. That's the best way I would recommend teaching this video now or teaching this game. I know that there are people out there that say they can get it down to 20, 30 minutes. God <laughs> bless you. Good on you. I can't do it. I, they must be teaching some of it as they go along. <laughs> Which I, I refuse it. to do. And so if that's the case, then good on you. But yeah, honestly, go to one of the rules videos. That's the best way to do it. Yeah. All right. That gets into the meat of the game now. What makes the game enjoyable and why? Uh, there's so much to do and so little time to do it. In. Yes, it plays long, but it always feels like you just never have the time or the number of actions, at least, to be able to do what you want. Which is the hallmark of a good game, right? I, I think so. Like, I am very staunchly in the Agricola versus Caverna camp. It's, it's Agricola for me. <laughs> like, I, being, I agree. To where, yeah. Being pressed to do what I want to do and actually feeling like I fought for it and, and earned it, it I, I enjoy it. That's uh, actually a pretty good analogy. I hadn't thought about that with to where this is, this is a tense somewhat stressful game even though you don't have the feed and heat like you do in agricola well, you but do you have still, the feeding. you do but it's not as it doesn't feel as stressful right. as agricola does but there's still that agonizing because of those slow turns of change of direction in this it feels like oh i never have enough time to be able to do what i want to do because i have to switch gears and uh it is agonizingly slow but I say that as a compliment because that's something I thoroughly enjoy about this game as well. Agreed. And the game, it's big. It's open. There's so many paths to victory. So many things you want to do. You just don't have the chance to do it unless you, of course, spend some saltpeter in order to get more actions. If you can have some saltpeter to do that. Right. And sure, you might start the game with one, but then you have to go and take an action to be able to get more of it if it's available and you have to have the money available to be able to pay for it but then if you're doing that to be able to take more actions that's one less action that you're going to be able to take and there's that stress yeah and you're not only that you're giving that money directly to other players to do it more than likely at the merchant guild 
So choices, choices, right? Agreed. And think of it as, to the best of my knowledge, there are five main paths that a player can take. Um, and I'm not going to go into depth uh, as to what these are. I'm just going to kind of uh, list them. Uh, call it the large empire strategy or the improvement in landscape strategy or the guild in reeves or a little jack of all trade kind of generalist and you know there's the name of the game the feudum strategy which i'll be honest even though the name of the game is feudum in my experience not a lot of feudums have come into play because they can make the game very difficult for the player that chooses to do that but it can be rewarding if they're successful with it. But on top of all of that, there are all the supplemental things that you can do. And this isn't an all-encompassing list, but getting improvements, those Royal Rick cards or the Endgame Goal cards, move up the Epic Voyage track, manipulate the availability of certain things in the various guilds, and then fight monsters. And then there's combat, or but there doesn't have to become... There are so many different things and so many different levers to pull and so many different directions that you can go. It really is a sandbox and the game does not to its credit, I would say doesn't handhold and lets you play the game how you want it played within the confines of, okay, well at the beginning of your turn, you played four cards. Okay. Well, there you go. Those are the four actions you can choose or that you're going to be taking this turn. What are you going to do with them now? Yeah. But yet, it's, I haven't even tried all of those things yet. I, I haven't either. <laughs> yeah, and I've seen at least attempts at each of these, which is good. Um, the Feudum, yeah, like you said, despite the name of the game, I don't see it that much. Our first few games, everybody was really res- uh, reticent to to try it because of all those negative points from the um, fealty negative. Yeah. Points if that. you don't initiate combat, if you don't fight and win, then there's a penalty and it can be a prohibitively expensive penalty that to be able to actually own or have feudums. But yeah. if you're able to do so, it can be very lucrative, but it forces your hand in that that's the only time in the game in which you were forced to engage in combat. Yeah, and I think the extra kick to you is the fact that not only do you have to take those actions in order to do uh, get onto that filthy track, but you are limited into which reeve discs you have, and you cannot use those in other tracks. You can't do the longest voyage or even put your reeves in the guilds for bonus points every time. If you're, if you've used them up down here, uh, for, for having upgraded to feudums, and so yeah. you have right, so you're limited on the number of reeve discs where you're going to use them. So the game kind of makes you make decisions as far as am I going to go heavy on the guilds? If so, I want to use my reeves to be able to get extra bonus victory points whenever I do a uh, pull action. Uh, I'm sorry, a push action as the guild leader or a pull action as the uh, the second command in the guild. Or like you said, are you going to go on the epic journey, which is, you know, the Zen-like journey for doing double moves, which gets you victory points? Or do you go into the feudum direction, which is going to get you 
negative victory points if you don't do use those reeve tokens to then cover up those spaces so like you said you want to do everything but there are clear delineations in what you can and can't do once you've started down a certain path and changing direction on those can be a killer especially if you're playing against players of the same amount of experience or more yeah that is one thing um i've definitely seen that players who have not played as much are going to be back um in the score at the end of the game new players that have uh at least experience with heavier games and have a lot of gaming experience in general will at least you know be in the running to to score okay um for the most part i feel Seems relatively balanced for as much as is going on in here. Yeah, I I haven't found any. And, and again, this is what five plays, so take yeah. that with a grain of salt. But I haven't found any dominant strategy. But mm-hmm. honestly, I don't know if any of us have played it at a level where we can say, "Oh, I'm playing this really, really well." Right. So I don't know that this is better than this. And that that goes to show both a depth as well as a breadth of gameplay in this game to where I couldn't even tell you if I'm doing things well at this point, but I'm enjoying the exploration of the different strategies in this game so far. The hallmark though, the, the best aspect of this game, in my opinion, is the guilds. Agreed. I, I would actually just play a game that was based mostly around these guilds. Um, I do think it's a benefit to the game to have that extra capacity to where what you're doing out on the board is actually what influences how your standing is in the guilds. But yeah, the system itself, I find really intriguing. Yeah, it's symbiotic. It's cyclic in nature. With the guild feed, this guild feeding the next guild, and then that one feeding on to the next one, it, it really is a wonderful and engaging system that, like I said, is very much the highlight of the game for me. And let me let me give you this example here to kind of the circle of life of the guilds. You can sell goods to the farmers guild, which then can send those goods to the merchant guild, where. They're available for the players to purchase. Okay, cool. That's easy enough. But in addition to that, the Merchant's Guild can send the goods over to the Alchemist Guild where players can construct vessels that players can acquire so that they can travel quicker around the board, in theory, based on the iconography, remember. <laughs> but then, those, or I should say, instead of uh, the the players constructing the vessels, the guild master can push those resources out to the Knights Guild. The Knights Guild can turn those resources into influence markers, which those influence markers are used to control locations on the board. So everyone's going to be running short of those. So players are going to want to create more influence markers with those resources that got pushed in there. However, they can send those resource markers over to the Noble Guild, which are converted to King Seals, which are victory points, potentially, or things that need to be done for the Royal Ritz. You need to have those King Seals, not like our, our seals, but, you know, like stamp seals. 
And then the seals can be sent to the monk guild, which are then converted into beads, which can then be sent to the chickens back at the <laughs> farmer's guild, which for some unholy, unknown reason, allow those chickens to store more resources. I don't know. But nonetheless, that's kind of the cycle of life of or a cycle of guild life. And to me, that is amazing and so well done. And I absolutely love that aspect of the game. I cannot stress that enough, how good that is. Yeah, I, when it ever comes down to even explaining the game, I say there are four to five actions you can take in a turn, but really you're only making three to four decisions because almost every single one of those times you're going to have that guild action. Card. Right. And the guild action, depending on what you're doing and you're standing within the guild, you have, dude, seriously, every guild has three different actions to where you can, you can purchase something or, or do the guild action, right? The main right. thing. If you're the guild master and I forget the exact terminology, so forgive me, but if you are first in, in uh, the guild, you can do what's called a push action. And the push action actually takes whatever the main thing that that guild uh, has for resources and pushes those over to the next guild for some amount of victory points. And if you're in the second place in the guild, then you can pull resources from the previous guild into this guild to help resupply that guild with whatever it is or some amount of victory points or cards or whatever. And I, the fact that one guild action card can give you so many different actions and availability and flexibility, provided you have the money, provided you have the things on the board and you're in a position to be able to do these things, it's amazing. But it also can be hella frustrating if you miscalculated something. Oh boy. I find that the journeyman position, uh, a lot of people think it's a little weaker. If you're going that Rick card strategy of getting a lot of those, you're getting one of those in addition to points every time you do a pull action. Uh, so you're a little up on luck, but some of those are really strong. Um, yeah, it, either it's in-game points or it's the ability to convert and get bonus resources or some kind of advantage during the game. Yeah, and even down to the weapon cards where you can essentially just attack somebody and have no chance of being locked out of, of taking over that pawn. Right, and one one aspect that we haven't touched on uh, talking about the combat is where the monsters come into play and how those can be worth points for or uh, sources of points for defeating them as well as possibly some of those royal writ cards for defeating monsters but also how they can trap players and their yes. workers <laughs> into locations to where oh all of a sudden they can't leave so oh they were going to play this move card to be able to but oh wait they're trapped they're stuck in this location until they defeat these monsters which can be a very strategic play or a very frustrating play, depending on what side of that equation you're on. Yeah. And if that happens to you very first turn of a round and you do not have anything selected to attack with, that's 
that's gonna hurt. <laughs> that that uh, that's where the old plan better uh, coin comes in to where well, if it was that important to you, then maybe you sacrifice one of those actions for a defense card or something that would kind of get you out of jail and give you as a workaround because every single action in this game. You can manipulate, you can work around, you can do all of these things, but it comes either with a cost or in either actions or resources or something like that, or it comes with time. And that time can be really valuable because this game has a very slow buildup, but then it accelerates as you go through the epochs to where the game, some of those epochs might only last one round as the game advances. The tracking and recalculating of who has what influence in each guild can be painstaking, but it can be made easier one of two ways. Either apparently there's tracking sheets available on BGG, or honestly, the way we do it is we added dice next to the influence tokens of the guilds to keep track, and we actually got dice in the player colors so that if pink is now the guild leader, and they have four influence, well, they put a pink four by their influence markers because otherwise you're having to recalculate all the time on, okay, how much influence and looking over at the board, and that grinds the game to a halt, whereas the easy workaround is getting dice to use. Yes, uh, the addition of the dice, which is the way we had um, tackled this problem, has drastically increased the speed at which we play the game. Um, yeah, like you said, there are, I think, two different, um, tracking, uh, sorry, guild tracks on the, on BGG, uh, and to your point earlier, I think this could have easily been part of this sideboard where we had this guild separated out and everything would have been much easier to, to keep track of. Um, but yeah, I personally don't have my dice uh, in in the player colors. But another friend of mine who also got the game, he has it, and it's it's nice to have. Yeah, it definitely it definitely helps. So replayability in this game is extremely high from a standpoint of both from choices and paths to victory that you have, but also. If you stay on the same path and try the same thing over multiple games, you're going the game's going to play out differently every single time based on what the other players do, but also there's enough here to where it's going to take a number of games to be able to get very proficient at a certain strategy. And that's I would argue that players there's enough interactivity between the players to where just because I'm doing well with the strategy this game, if I employ the exact same strategy next game, it might not do as well for the simple fact that the play other players are going to do different things. And if they do, then, well, guess what? My strategy might not work as well. So the replayability here is extraordinarily high. Yes, I agree. Um, yeah, the last time I played, I went for the feeding strategy, which I've... I mean, nobody's even tried it, and that's the reason why everybody in the group was surprised <laughs> that it went so well. Uh, but yeah, every single game has been markedly different from each other. 
and the aesthetics help. The artwork, the whimsical kind of fun aspect of the game and the theme of the game. I enjoy it. I actually really like it, even though it's kind of a fantasy medieval theme. I enjoy that aspect of the game. Yeah, and actually, if you get the expansion booklets, the uh, more of the backstory that's on the last page, I think, of the rule book is expanded on each of them of the last page so you get a little bit more and it has a, a little cute story in there all right cool good stuff and like i said the interaction in this game is pretty high and it's not all negative interaction it's not all you know even though we talked about the fact that you can trap players and you can remove their their workers from the board and you're bumping down uh players influence and negatively impacting them in a lot of ways there is some positive interaction in that it, it can be a bit symbiotic that if a guild master in one guild pushes resources over into another guild, well, then one of the other players can then use those resources to then do whatever it is that the other players need them to do in that guild. And so there's that symbiotic nature. But on the flip side of that, it can be a negative that if somebody's not doing what their quote unquote job is in the guild, but then you can take over those guilds to then do the job yourself. But then we're going back to your limited in actions on how much you want to be able to do these things and you have your own plans. So damn it, just do your job people. But there there's that symbiotic relationship that I really, really like in this game as well. Yeah, on top of that symbiotic relationship is the flow of money in the builds, I think, um, both because both the master and the journeyman are going to get some of the money whenever somebody's trading with guild. Uh, and then on top of that, uh, the monk and farmer guilds, if the master chooses to go ahead and push in either of those, they're going to divvy out all of the money that's collected uh, over the game between those two players so which motivates other players that aren't getting the spoils of that it motivates them to be like oh you know what i don't want you being guild master and dictating that anymore and me not getting any of the cuts the mm-hmm. the proceeds from that so you know what i'm going to do whatever i can out there on the board be it either boost my own influence with that guild either by putting out new workers or advancing uh, uh, different um, towns into the types that I need or just, you know, killing you. That's also (laughs) an option. So there's that. And there's a, so there's a number of ways to get yourself out of a problem that this game offers. Some are not, always readily apparent and some are not always super straightforward like throwing a feast and getting a player drunk to where oh if you're not going to do your job that's another way that i can do the your job is i can get you drunk and take over that guild temporarily i i I think that's a fascinating idea and clever way to be able to use um use that action to be able to, okay, if you're not going to jumpstart the economy, I'll do it. Have you actually seen the, the feast action taken in a game? I have not. I have, I've done it. Um, the first two games, I totally forgot that existed. (laughs) 
um, the fact that you can throw a feast for uh, a player, and I don't have the rule book in front of me, but the feast action, it allows you to throw a feast, and essentially that player gets drunk, and so now you can take over and do the action that they are negating they're not doing so that, you know what? Fine, if you're not going to do it, I will. And it helps jumpstart things if they are busy doing other things that they should be doing. The feast action, uh, if you turn in a sulfur cube from your wine barrel in between, you've already uh, reserved that as wine. You throw for a feast uh, for any pawn or feudum uh, that your one of your pawn is adjacent to. And you will perform the push or pull function as if you were their position in the guild. Uh, you will do this for their regular points plus three more. Uh, anything, if it can, triggers the distribution of the coffers or the the farmer's purse. Uh huh. Then you will actually take their share of the shenanigans. Uh huh. So here in the rule in over on BGG, there's a really good example of this. So um, like this is one of those really clever aspects of this game. And it says, let's say you're the guild master of the alchemist guild. There are no vessels in your shop, but I need to buy one. If I move my pawn to where your alchemist pawn is, I use the feast action. I pay a sulfur from my barrel and then I take the guild master push action. I do it exactly as if I were the guild master and not you. And I'm the one who scores the three victory points. And in addition to whatever the action scores, it's like tracking you down, getting you drunk, sneaking into your office and then doing your job. That's awesome. I, I I love the fact that you have this. And I think this is the most underrated thing that you can do in this game, but it's super sneaky. And it's one of the aspects that I love the most because of the fact that, and it's one of the things that I'm going to bring up on the flip side of things that I don't like, that when things bog down, they can really bog down. And if you forget that this action is available, then that game, the game can, can, can stagnate and can stay bogged down a bit. But if players remember that this is an available action, but that goes back to that rules complexity. There's just so many rules to keep track of. Like you've been saying, Brandon, you totally forgot that you, like you haven't seen this done. And I'm like, well, if, if the guild master is not doing their job, somebody ought to be busting out a feast on their tail. And, and I've always explained the rule. It's one that I always have to remember specifically to do because it's at the end of the guild. Yeah, part of it the took explanation me two games forever. <laughs> yeah, it took me two games to forget or to remember that this yeah. that this is there. But it is a huge, it's important huge. things to it's remember. It's just got that conditional aspect of you have to be adjacent to somebody's pawn or their feudum. But in games that are low on feudums. Then it's their pawn, which means you then have to go and hunt down where that specific pawn for that specific guild for that uh, guild master. So, okay, it's conditional, but at least there's an out. There is an out. That goes to show that there is that that aspect of this game to where, okay, fine. This isn't the way I wanted to go, but okay, I'll do this. However, to be able to do that, you have to have a move action. 
Well, if you didn't pre-program a move action, you know what you're not going to do this turn? You're not going to do a feast action because you didn't move. Mm -hmm. And what if you did get a move action and they moved to a different location, which is too far? Well, then next turn you have to spend another move action to then and go and hunt them down unless they went on a vessel uh, and moved somewhere that you can't reach them. Well, now you need a vessel to... So you can see how... And again... Things turn slowly in this game. Yeah. So, and I don't know about your experience, but I know at least sometimes in ours, moving around the board is not as fast as you'd hope to. Nothing in this game <laughs> is as fast as you would hope it to be. But that's not necessarily a negative thing because I enjoy that slow burn and that slow buildup that this game has. I actually really enjoy it. You just have to understand that, like what you just said, Nothing happens fast in this game. Unless it's the end of an epoch and you're not prepared. <laughs> then that happens in the blink of an eye. <laughs> that is true. The last thing on the positive side of the ledger that I want to say, and this isn't to say that this is every positive aspect of the game, but I think we've hit on mm. the majority of them. And that is that this game feels unique. And uniqueness in this hobby of ours is not something to overlook. And the fact that I don't know that there is anything that feels or mechanically works like this does. And I think that there's, yeah, it's just not something to overlook. I think there's something important about that. All right. Switching gears, moving over to the other side of the ledger on the stuff. What's not to like. I'll start this one. There's almost too much to do in this game. It's almost, dare I say, too wide open. Too many directions that a player can go where it'd be helpful for a player if another player assisted them, i.e. in those guilds that we just talked about for a while. But the sheer number of directions and options that a player has might make that highly unlikely to happen. Do things in a guild as guild leader and push goods, items, resources, whatever from the guild build vehicles to travel to locations to then be able to add or move their pawns to attack another player or a monster or upgrade locations up to and including creating feudums, which can gain players victory points, as we said, or advancing up the, the epic journey path to quote unquote, find inner peace. You also get a fair bit of victory points for that, as well as improving their standing either in an exit in a guild they already have standing in or in a different guild. All of this while reminding yourself as the player that the game takes time to do things. And so that kind of goes back to what I was saying about that slow turn, that it takes time to plan and execute things and therefore changing course or changing direction feels like it takes forever to react to what other players did or in the process of doing. So in this way, changing course is more like an aircraft carrier in the ocean as opposed to a cruiser or a small, more nimble ship that can, that can turn and pivot on a proverbial dime. You can't do that in this game. And you might have to puzzle out. Okay. Well, that sucks. Brandon, you just, took my pawn off the board and that was everything I was going to do this turn revolved around that radio. Okay. So what do we do? And puzzling that out 
sometimes can be extraordinarily frustrating and hard, but there are benefits that, oh, you might be able to find a a new way out of a sticky situation that you wouldn't have had you not been stuck in that position to begin with. But that's something to consider that it's just a very slow burn. Yeah, there's so many things to think about. It is a contradicting point that that was such a strong suit in our strong points of the game. Um, But it is true that that is that's going to happen, uh, especially with some of the AP prone players that those kind of things will happen. It's going to punch the game in the gut and kind of stall out sometimes. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, and and like you said, when the, when other players force you to make course corrections, because you will have already programmed those cards. Mm-hmm. You're kind of locked in, and if and it's an extreme situation if you get a pawn removed. That, at least in my experience, that doesn't happen that often, but maybe it has in yours more than in our games. I I've seen people lose pawns due to their not being able to feed more often than than not. Correct, but that's going to happen more at the yeah. end of. And that's their right. planning. <laughs> Right, exactly. That then that's on you, right? right? Um whereas just there still can be some unexpected circumstances mm-hmm. that happen in this game that require you to adjust and just those adjustments move slowly, I guess is the gist of what yeah. I'm saying. I've had just a a um behemoth come into the way, couldn't go through that route or all of a sudden I didn't expect a player to use the merchant, not the merchant, the alchemist guild to create a vessel and all of a sudden all the fairies have shut down. (laughs) Right. Oh yeah, that's right. If, uh, if there are no, uh, if there are no vessels available, then the fairies are open. Good news. But once fairies are available or once vessels are available, Oh, sorry. The fairies are no longer, they're closed down for the season. So what does that mean? Well, if you were planning on doing that movement, so sorry. So, and again, yeah, that both plan better, but also slow turns, right? Mm-hmm. Agreed. And the game, the game's fiddly, <laughs> both from a physical fiddliness as well as a mechanical fiddliness. And I find games like Indonesia or Roads and Boats, since we talked about Splatter earlier, those games are fiddly if from a component standpoint or an antiquity. Feudum can be compared to those in a way as far as fiddliness, but then there's stuff for like tracking control of the guilds or just keeping all the rules straight in your head that the rules overhead fiddliness is kind of on par with anything that I've run into, be it a through the ages or even like a Phil Eklund type game to where there, this kind of has both types of fiddliness, both from a physical as well as a rules overhead aspect. Yeah. I'm usually one to avoid using the term fiddly, but in this case it is absolutely fitting. Um, Agreed on Phil Eklund has the most Rules-wise, fiddliest games I can I can think of, and 
these aren't quite there, but they're getting there for the weight of the game that it is. I agree. Yep. Um, I don't mind some of the physical fiddliness. I've the tactile playing around with pieces on the board. That's one of the reasons I enjoy playing physical board games more than sitting at my computer and playing games. No arguments, but it's something that folks need to be aware of for the simple fact that, yeah, there's going to be a lot of stuff that you're going to be moving around and tracking and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And that's the thing is you have to prepare some players for this game. And um, I find it hard sometimes to, to get players onto it, although they're excited for the chance to play something when they see it, it looks exciting. You explain to them it's going to take three and a half hours. Once you've taught them for at least an hour and that it's going to be something that in order to get, I have to play a few times in a month's time. Um, it, it, it's hard to get more players, but at the same time, I don't really want to teach more players this game. Right. I, I would love to be able to have a group of folks that look, okay, once a month, we're going to play this. And this way you don't have that, that huge impediment for having to teach the game. Mm -hmm. But also if there's any significant amount of time between plays for players, including myself, it's going to force them to almost have to relearn the game. And that's just, and in fact, a number of the games that we've reviewed recently are kind of like that, whether it's a, a game like Trickerian or a game like Through the Ages. If you're not getting it to the table relatively often, then it's almost like having to start from zero. Not quite, but enough so that there's going to be a, a rules refresh that is not going to be an insignificant amount of time. Great. Um, yeah, at least with other players that have played it before, they are more likely to watch the 28-minute video and hit, hit the ground running, even if it's been a, a little while. Um, it just always makes me wish the rules were a little simpler. Agreed. Yeah, it looks sometimes like uh, rules have been tacked on to things just to make the efforts of making uh, things balanced instead of stepping back, looking at those, say, what can we actually change to not necessarily streamline the game, but just not find innovative solutions instead of just adding on something as much as let's just remove the beads from the chickens. <laughs> right. And so if you're listening to this, you can hear that, you know, I find that this is an interesting and good game in here, but I do feel like there are aspects of the game that needed further development or trimming. And when I say that, the best way to describe this is to paraphrase something that Michael Keller said to me back when I interviewed him, Michael Keller, designer of Agra and Deluvia Project, among others. Michael said that he's really good at creating a robust and quote unquote full tree. And he's a really good ideas or, hey, this is a cool mechanism type guy. But from that point, he needs a strong developer to then take what he created and those ideas and then trim some of those branches and prune here and there, both to make it a full tree as well as a well-trimmed tree. 
And that doesn't necessarily mean to streamline all of the edges off of it. It just means to trim it here and there. And I think that Feudum needed something akin to that more so than it needed anything else. Uh, Cause there's just, there's some aspects of this game that just feel excessive. And you're talking to the guy who runs heavy cardboard. It just, I think, yeah, I, I, I think there's, there's things that could have been developed out without having lost anything from this game. Yeah. And I think one of the biggest places where that could have been is the guild system for strong as I think that is for the game. It is one of the sources of the biggest bottlenecks um, and things that have slowed down the game because just resources dry up or that that's the biggest cause is that resources are completely unavailable if people are not pushing or pulling between those guilds. Right. And that goes back to that feast action. But again, there's that prerequisite of you have to be in the same position. Plus you need, if you're not in the same location, not position, but location, if you're not there, then you have to get there and you have to have, programmed a the right cards to be able to do those two actions i.e move and then throw a host a feast and you have to have uh the cube in your wine barrel to be able to do all that so you have to have set up yourself to have the availability to take over if that player is not doing it and then not only that it's got to come all the way back around to your turn before you can actually use another guild action to gain to reap the rewards of all that work. And you have to have had a guild action card. So maybe you didn't for whatever. Of course not because the guild action card you had to use in order to do the feast. So you had to use the guild action card and have the double up card. Right. So, Oh wait, that's all four of your actions. Yeah. Planned out just to be able to do that. So again, this goes back to that very slow curve or very slow turn. Well, in this case, you've planned for it. You had to move. You had to throw the feast. You had to use the double action uh, to do the guild action. But now that you've done the guild action, and here's the kicker. So what if that was to create vessels or something along those lines? Well, if you're doing that, it's possible that another player can then swoop in and reap the benefits of what it is that you just created when you were trying to create it for yourself. But now all of a sudden you just made this stuff or filled the market or whatever it was. And then other players, oh, hey, thanks for doing that. Don't mind if I do purchase those things or do whatever it is that you just did for your benefit. Well, they just reap the benefit of it. And that can be insanely frustrating. So that's also something to take into consideration. So again, nothing happens quickly in this game. Yeah. All right. The last two things that I got. The first one is combat feels a bit out of place. I don't know how you feel about this. Uh, Yeah, it kind of does just both in its presence in the game and then kind of how it plays out. The fact it has two different types of combat does not help the because they're attacking pawns which has a slightly different subset of your values of what your attackers and defenders are worth versus attacking a feudum. And then that always gets confusing to people because 
when attacking a feudum, your influence tokens, uh, either as serfs or as rulers of a kingdom, actually count towards your defense, whereas when attacking a pawn, those are completely out of the story. Right, and there's a perfect example of the fiddliness and rules fiddliness to where, okay, there's that inconsistency depending on what you're attacking. Are you attacking the pawn or are you attacking the feudum? And that inconsistency is just more things to keep track of in your head that gets in the way of the enjoyment of the game. Yeah, and all of those values are on the player aid, but in this string of text that is a little hard to, to process and a little hard to teach other players. And if you don't, if you haven't upgraded or built feudums, you don't have to involve yourself in combat if you don't want to. But if you do, then that's the one time that it's essentially, it's compulsory that you do so because otherwise you're going to be hemorrhaging so many points that you can't afford to not once you've made that decision to upgrade to a feudum. And that just felt weird. That's the best way I can put it. It just didn't feel good to me to where that it felt like that was the main reason for combat to be in this is okay. There's got to be some sort of balance for getting these powerful feudums out there. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. We'll force you to do something that is difficult to do with the combat. Yeah, and it's especially so because the feudums are so powerful in the fact that you get your position in war guilds and you solidify your position in guilds because those are three influence points apiece, I think. And then that also means that you're in guilds beyond your three limited pawns. So, so yeah, just uh, as a whole, combat just felt weird in this game. And you're talking to somebody, and well, I mean, you and I both play war games, so we have no no qualms. We are qualmless uh, when it comes to uh, uh, combat in games. But yeah, so there it is. The last thing that I wanted to point out, is, and we've kind of touched on this really already, is the game wants, if not needs its players, to invest time and energy in the game. It rewards those that invest that time and energy, and honestly, it's only going to frustrate players that only choose to dabble in the game. So if you're only going to play a game once or twice or choose to, oh, we'll play it, but maybe not going to play it again for six months, Feudum's probably not the game for you. For the simple mm-hmm. fact that, like I said, it's going to cause you to do that investment of time of relearning the game if there's a significant amount of time between your plays. All right, so let's talk scalability a bit. There's really not a whole lot as far as scaling down components or mechanisms based on the player count, is there? No, not at all. Uh, it's In fact, there's the one on part where the food cubes that are supplied in the game, there's no rules for having a limited amount in the haversack after you've distributed to players. So at lower player counts, you actually have more food cubes in there to be randomly distributed, which is strange because you need it less than when there's more players. Um, yeah, that seems backwards. It does. Uh, and then I've played this four and five, and then 
I'll go ahead and count one player with the solo rules. I have the expansion to do the six player. I don't think I ever will. I don't think I want to play this at six players. And I'll be honest, I didn't even include that in a player account because I forgot one of the expansions does boost it up to six. Yeah. I think I'm all set there. <laughs> yeah, I use those pieces just because I prefer to play with black or gray. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, the two player, I also don't think would work very well. Uh, there'd be so much open space and there'd be no interacting in the guilds. Like, I don't Yeah, that changes it. the complete landscape of the game in that the the lack of interaction in that game would seem very lackluster to me now obviously you and i have not played it too so again apologies to everybody um but personally i've enjoyed it at four and five players a lot uh my plays of it when i've played it um a little bit less so at three just for the simple fact that like you said there's less interaction there so for me it's it's less appealing and reducing that even further at two players would probably reduce my interest. I I don't see two players and think, Oh, you know what I want to play? Feudum. <laughs> yeah. I could see three working if more people are doing part of the feudums. And so you have more influence workers and more players with influence in all of the guilds. But aside from that, I, I don't know. I hear people, Really enjoy it at three. I, I think four is my pref- preferred spot. Uh, five's, five's fine. I like it at five for the simple fact that all that interaction, like we talked about with the one caveat that, okay, look, we're no AP guys. Let's keep this moving and, and keep it humming along. All right. Now, one of my favorite parts of every review. We have the comments from BGG. So here we go. I have four of them today, and I think it's a pretty good mix of things. So here we go. This game takes maybe three to four plays to really get everything down and a dedicated group of four to five players who will stick with it that long. There's still plenty to explore in those first few games, but once the breakthrough happens, the strategy for this game is immense. And I mean real strategy. Decisions you make in the first turn can drive your engines of success or failure. It's not a given that a bad or mediocre move in the first round will plummet you to a loss, but careful choices are rewarded over and over again. That seems reasonable. Yeah, I'd say I'd agree with that. I think so. Yeah. All right, next one. This game certainly deserves praise for the scope of its vision. It's a truly ambitious design, both in terms of components and artwork. But with that said, I believe complexity needs to have a purpose. It has to add value to the package. Unfortunately, in Feudum, many rules and mechanisms add confusion and fiddliness rather than fun or depth of strategy, unless you find torturing yourself pleasurable, (laughs) that is. Some people do. (laughs) Fair enough. Alex from Bottom Shelf Board Games uh, wrote this, and I think this summed it up really well. Feudum suffers from wouldn't it be cool syndrome? Wouldn't it be cool if you could feed your people with wine, but then they'll get drunk? Wouldn't it be cool if you could recruit monsters into your army? Wouldn't it be cool if there were pathways that open and close? Wouldn't it be cool if each action card had a special ability tied to different pawns? 
and so on and so forth. It's ambitious, audacious, and admirable to a point. Just remember that each of these new ideas introduces more rules overhead, and while none of them are hard to understand on their own, in congregate, it requires allocating mental resources just to keep rules straight instead of playing the game. But as daunting as the rules may seem, I will say that after half a play, I was getting a decent grip on them, and even after just a game or two, I was downright comfortable. It wasn't, it wasn't easy getting there, but I got there but I can't say it was worth the effort. All right. All right, last one. Every time I play this game, it grows a little more on me. It has quickly become one of my favorite games. Very sandboxy, which I love, and very deep with very interesting decisions, which very much depend on what other players are doing. There are lots of passive victory and tactics to employ. Players may choose to focus on area control, other players may focus on aggressive tactics in combat, and others still may want to play the game economically, and so on. On top of this, players may employ long period tactics or try and make a run for it and shorten the game. Every game is a whole new experience. And I think that's all of these. I can see merit to every single one of those comments, and I can see it from a different perspective depending on what people are getting from the game. Yeah, I think so. I've seen some comments in there with have gone very much in the negative uh opinion uh some humorous some just mean but but yeah no i i, I think, think these oh, were all and yeah fair. i went through and i read or I, I read through a whole lot of those uh <laughs> yeah. trying to trying to sift through to find those and i feel like I feel like all those are fair, like I said, from the different points of view to where people just, depending on your personal likes, as well as your willingness to involve yourself in a game this big and this audacious and ambitious, I think all of those have merit, uh, have fair points. So, yeah. all right, that said, uh, summary, um, you being the guest, Brandon, you want to go first? Sure. Uh, Feudum is a game for which I have some pretty strong conflicting opinions. On one hand, I really enjoy that there's so much to explore, but on the other, it has so many. I do not enjoy teaching the game because there's so many things to point out up front. It has elements that could have been removed in development to the better, but at the same time, it has a life of its own because it's not overdeveloped to the point of being indistinct from other growing numbers of games flooding in every year. It's something unique. And I applaud uh, Mark for that. It's quirky, it's pretty, and there's lots to consider during playing. I enjoy it a lot. It's not a top-tier game for me, but I have certainly enjoyed uh, my plays, if not the teaching time leading up to those. I think the name of Mark's company was aptly named Odd Bird Games. Because let's face it, Feudum is a bit of an odd bird. It has plenty of depth, but I would venture to say it also has an excess of breath. There's a lot of good stuff in here, but it can get overshadowed by the lesser parts of the game. There's a lot that I really enjoy about Feudum especially about the guilds and the pre-planning of your actions. And I like the slow burn 
that this game is. But there are also a number of aspects which we've covered today that just make it a bit of a slog. Not to mention the fact that my unwillingness to teach this game anymore is a big detriment to getting this back onto the table. And if a game's not hitting a table, I don't care how much I enjoy the game. The game's got to get to the table for me to be able to enjoy it, right? So ultimately, I think it's a hell of a debut design, and I'm looking forward to what else Mark comes up with. That said, I think there's enough to keep me from being in love with this game. So that said, we rate on a one to six scale here on Heavy Cardboard. One, burn it with fire. Six being a Hall of Fame and no half numbers. So Brandon, where do you have it? I, I struggled a bit on this one. Uh, and I know that the opinion on the show sometimes has been, if you struggle, then it's the lower number. But I think I'm going to still edge it up to a four. I, I really do enjoy every one of the games I've played, even if there's been pain leading up to it. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I'm going to rate it a four. All right. And I've struggled with this one as well. Uh, because I could make a case that this is anywhere between a three and a five, honestly. A three being it has some really cool stuff, but there's enough here to keep it down. Um, but at the same time, usually my my threshold on when I start to consider owning a game is at a four and a five being a step up from that. So all things considered, I think it falls as a four for me as well. Um, and we didn't really talk about any of the expansion stuff, which every time I hear people talk about expansions for this game, I literally laugh out loud because <laughs> there is plenty enough in this base game to keep me occupied. I'm not looking to add more to this game as is. Yeah. And I think that would become, that would become the cones of, Dun- uh, what is it? Dunshire or whatever. Uh, Cones of Dunshire. Yeah. Um, No, uh, the base game, maybe, maybe the squirrels and conifers, which is like a tiny little expansion to add on to. But outside of that, I just, and obviously you can speak to the queen's army, which is the, yeah, uh, I've I've actually played all of the expansions so far. Oh, okay. And uh, most of them are quick little things. The, Squirrels and conifers being the shortest to explain. It is merely replacing all of the few cubes with pink ones. And every time a wood cube comes onto the board, it sprouts a tree. And that tree produces food every round. It's nice when you have more players because there's more food to go around. But it's just another thing to administrate between rounds. Um... Most of the expansions are like that. They seem like things that were removed because they were things that didn't play test well, maybe. Um, They don't really add that much except for more time to explain on rules. Uh, The one standout, aside from Queen's Army, which was its own development process, is Alter Ego. Um, That one I have not had a chance to play. It's the one I have not played. And I think it's got the most promise because what it essentially does is um, 
changes out all of your special action alternatives for cards, and you get to choose which cards you're going to change out uh, at the beginning of the game. And so you kind of have a slight asymmetry. Oh, to to your actual deck. So your yeah. 11 identical cards are no longer 11 identical cards. Correct. Oh, I could. Okay. That, yeah. That I can see that I, depending on what it is. And I haven't looked into the expansions. I'll be honest. Oh, um, <laughs> that actually sounds really appealing. And like yeah. I said, the, the, the squirrels and conifers, that's a very low overhead for, okay, fine. We're going to throw that in. Fine. Whatever. No big deal. Yeah. Um, but the alter ego sounds really interesting, but the queen's army, which is the solo expansion, um, Thoughts on that? Yeah, sure. Um, I've played it twice so far. It's it's enjoyable. Um, it has some predictability, uh, like you would expect. Uh, it's an Automa deck, so essentially there's four, four or five uh, decks of cards that you'll do one of their action. Uh, you'll flip over one every turn, um, and it'll do some program movement as a dummy player. Um, it is pretty dumb, but it's severely overpowered to to counteract that. Um, I've won one of the two times uh, by an okay margin. Um, the rulebook for that it it's lacking. Uh, there's there's a few things where it just says okay now you do this and it's not clear at all. That could have gotten a better treatment. Um, so yeah, Queen's Army. I I enjoyed it enough. It's I, if I was to play a solo game, especially something that long, I'd probably play something else. Okay. All right. So fair enough. And that, folks, is our review of Feudum. And big thanks to Mark Swanson over at Oddbird Games for the review copy of the game. All right. So thanks everybody for listening. Uh, I enjoyed it, Brandon. How was uh, how was the experience for you? Oh, it was good. Thank you for having me on. Oh, my pleasure. So uh, are you on, I know you're in the uh, Heavy Cardboard Slack. Are you on social media anywhere? Uh, no. I, you can find me on BGG, is BC Seda. But aside from that, I don't social media. <laughs> All right. I don't blame you. All right. So cool. There we go. And as you guys know, you can hit me up, uh, Google Heavy Cardboard, at Heavy Cardboard on Twitter, Facebook, there's Instagram, there's email, contact at heavy cardboard, et cetera, et cetera. So thanks everybody. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Let us know. Uh, shoot me an email, hit me up on Twitter or somewhere else. Let us know what you thought of the review, but also what's your experience with Feudum? Let us know uh, what you guys, if do you enjoy the game? How many times have you played it? What player accounts do you prefer that, et cetera, et cetera. So that said, be back in a couple weeks with the next episode. So Brandon, well done. Thanks a lot. Take care, everybody. Bye.